Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Ask LFC podcast. Uh, my name is Harrison. I'm the Worship Arts Director here at Lake Forest Huntersville, and uh, sitting down today with a special guest, I have Matt Sorens here with me. What's up, Matt? It's good to be with you. Yeah, it's good to have you here. We just came over from our men's breakfast uh, with Matt, and he got a chance to share for a while. And uh, so, Matt, I'm going to read the I'm going to read the official bio if that's okay to, to intro you you seem like more of an informal dude but i'm gonna do the formal thing to, so people know who you are all right all right, all right here we go uh, matt's a vice president for advocacy and policy at world relief and is the national coordinator of the evangelical immigration table he's the co-author of several books awesome including welcoming the stranger justice compassion and truth in the immigration debate and inalienable how marginalized kingdom voices can help save the american church He's a graduate of Wheaton College in Illinois and has served as guest faculty for the Humanitarian and Disaster Institute. He lives in Aurora, Illinois with his wife, Diana, and their four children. Matt, um, again, it's, good. It's, it's great to have you here. What, what brought you into uh, our little neck of the woods down here this morning? Yeah, um, so World Relief, where I work, we've got offices around the country, not actually here in the Charlotte area, but we have one in Durham and one in the Triad area. And one of my colleagues in, in Durham basically presented the idea, could you do some events across the state of North Carolina? And so I've actually been here for about a week from Wilmington to, Hunt, uh, let's see, uh, where was I yesterday? Uh, Hendersonville. Yep. Uh-huh. And gotten to see the various parts of this beautiful state. And I actually my 10-year-old daughter traveling with me too, which has been fun. So that is, That's awesome. Um, so uh, you were just telling me while we were walking over here before our, our listeners, um, um how long have you been with World Relief, and, and what is your, what is what does your job actually look like on a day to day? Yeah, I started with World Relief as an intern uh, in 2005, which means I'm kind of getting old now. Uh, actually, I, I started with World Relief in Nicaragua. I spent six months there, hmm. and came back from that and really loved the experience. Loved the mission of World Relief, which is empowering local churches to serve the vulnerable. Honestly, I didn't know what we did in the United States, but there was an office of World Relief down the street from the college where I was studying in Wheaton, Illinois, and so I applied for a job there in 2006 and got turned down, but then I applied for another job and got turned down, but on the third try, they hired me, Uh, so be persistent if you're in that, looking for a job category. (laughs) Third time's the charm. And I've been there ever since, uh, a number of different roles. I worked as a legal counselor for a while, helping immigrants understand their options under U.S. immigration law. Hmm. And then uh, worked really for about a decade, primarily just working with churches and denominations, thinking in both theologically and missiologically informed ways, but also sort of factually informed ways about issues of refugees and immigration. Hmm. And now, just for the last six months or so, I lead our, our advocacy team. So helping uh, both our, our our offices around the country, as well as our church partners, think about public policy issues that impact vulnerable people, whether internationally hmm. or, or in the U.S. Okay. I want to get into some of that in just a little bit, but one more one more zoom out question for you, just um, for folks to understand uh, your organization as a whole. Um, maybe hard to sum up quickly uh, or briefly, but what what uh, what is this the the central part of what World Relief does? What is what is World Relief? Yeah, the, so we're a global Christian humanitarian organization. Um, we were actually started by the National Association of Evangelicals about 80 years ago. And hmm. uh, what I think is the distinctive of World Relief, there's lots of good organizations caring for vulnerable people around the world. What's really distinctive about World Relief is our commitment to the local church. We really believe that uh, God has created his church, and that's his plan for caring for vulnerable people. And we can come alongside hmm. local churches, whether in communities 
like here in North Carolina or in sub-Saharan Africa or in Haiti or Ukraine or the various other places where we work. Hmm. Um, you know, wherever possible, we try to partner and equip local churches to be kind of on the front lines. I've talked about this a lot with our um, <clears throat> our Missio Day pastor, Andrew Ruth, but I'm sure you could speak into it a little bit to that exact point from what you've seen. Um, there is uh, there's so much more long-term effect that can be had uh, from from us well-meaning American folks, especially going in around the world um, where sometimes I think at our, at our weakest and can be ineffective is like a drop in for a big thing, throw a big party, give away a bunch of stuff and then drop straight back out where um, some of the, some of the most effective long-term change that we've seen is by recognizing who are, who are the churches in the area we're going to that are doing it well and how can we equip and partner with them? Cause we're going to be out of here in a couple weeks or a month or a couple months, however long we're there. But these are the folks that are on the ground long-term. Yeah, absolutely. I and mean, that's very much guiding our philosophy of ministry at world relief, even though, I mean, we wouldn't be there for a few weeks or months. We'll be there for a few years at least. Sure. But even still, you know, we can't commit that we will <clears> be there forever, but the, the local church hopefully will until yeah. Jesus returns. Hmm. And, I mean, most of our staff around the world are nationals of the countries where they work and part of local churches themselves. But then our ministry model is working through local churches. And in the U.S. as well, where, I mean, we're focused on refugee resettlement and immigration services. Um, you know, we want people to be served well by World Relief. But what we really want them to remember is being welcomed and served well by a local church hmm. who can have a relational uh, commitment that, you know, we may have limits on our funding or just our, our resources. We can't provide intensive services indefinitely but that team from a church we call that a good neighbor team that would welcome a refugee family at the airport and walk alongside them Mm. our hope is you know we don't ask for a lifelong commitment because it would be hard to get people to sign up for that but we hope that it becomes a long-term friendship a mutual friendship uh, where that team from a church is helping and meeting a lot of basic needs up front but also is really being blessed by that family and learning a lot from that cross-cultural interaction as well Mm. how have you seen um How have you seen things uh, over the last handful of years when it comes to it? To to me, um, it doesn't even seem like this should be any kind of controversial or difficult thing. Because as you just talked about in our men's breakfast, um, the Jesus is is so clear throughout the New Testament, and we see throughout the Bible um, God's heart for. Uh, the vulnerable, for the broken, for the people who are the most in need. Um, but it's just, it feels like I can't totally make sense of it. What do you see? Because you do this all the time. Yeah. You know, I do think um, we've been doing this at World Relief since, in, in terms of refugee resettlement in particular, since the 70s. So this is not hmm. something new to us. And it did kind of come as a, a wake-up call to us. It was really, I can remember very specifically, it was 2015 when suddenly refugee resettlement became super controversial. Hmm. And we had not necessarily found that to be the case. Other immigration issues maybe were prior to that to some extent, but refugee resettlement, I I think we thought that most Americans and at least most Christians understood that these are all people who have been vetted by the U.S. government. They, by definition, have a well-founded fear of persecution, which is a very sympathetic story. Um, And what we realized starting in 2015 is we saw public opinion towards refugee resettlement go pretty negative, or at least kind of a divisive. It was like a 50-50 issue nationally, and frankly, among um, certain categories of Christians, it was more negative than positive. Hmm. I think it was a wake-up call for us that for a long time, when we thought about equipping churches to welcome refugees, we focused kind of on the how of refugee resettlement, like here's how to you know understand cross-cultural I- interactions and 
um, we maybe skipped over the why, the, sure. the theological reasons mm-hmm. that we just shared in the men's breakfast, um, which was a mistake because we ought to be going back to that over and over and over again. But the Bible does have so much to say, um, b- both sort of generally about loving your neighbors yourself and caring for those who are vulnerable, but also some pretty specific things to say about how to care for foreigners and those who are, um, who've had to, to flee hardship. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you can do that in ways that also honor the law, which there's some biblical principles there as well. We think you can bring those various biblical streams together. And we've spent a lot more time in the last few years really, I think, calling the church back to what we think is a biblical approach to this issue. Um, that, you know, we, I led this morning with this pretty troubling stat to me that among evangelical Christians, by self-admission, we've done polling on this with LifeWay Research, only about one in five evangelical Christians say that they think about immigration primarily uh, from the perspective of the Bible. Hmm. That's rather scandalous for people who would say the Bible is their authority for every issue. Yeah, sure, sure. You pointed out also in the breakfast I thought was good and have thought about in the past that one of the, what's become to the church, one of the really like um, cornerstone Jesus parables is the story of the Good Samaritan, which at at its core is really a story about um, having like a a kind of a, a dangerous love for uh, and and practical care for somebody who is directly not a part of your culture to a point to where um, when Jesus mentioned Samaritan his crowd would be like yeah you know I mean "Mm." you see that just how despised the Samaritans were in that society at various points in in the gospels I mean at one point when some of his critics want to insult Jesus they say isn't it true that you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan yeah that was the best insult (laughs) oh no yeah Um, and you know, and you see this among Jesus' disciples. At one point, they are suggesting to him, hey, do you want us to call down fire on that Samaritan village? But Jesus' approach to Samaritans, uh, of course, is very countercultural um, mm-hmm. in various interactions with them in the Gospels, including in not just making them like the object of compassion in the Good, Mar- Good Samaritan story. It wasn't a Samaritan beaten up and a virtuous Jewish person helped them. That would be countercultural. Mm-hmm. But he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Yeah. The model of neighborly love. I mean, we could probably think of what the hist- you know, what the parallel in our society today. The people would not expect to be the hero of the story. Yeah, it was a shocking message. But as you said, fundamentally, I mean, whoever the neighbor whom we're called to love is, and I think it's a very broad category. It's got to include a vulnerable stranger, traveler of a different ethnicity or a different religion who is in need, because that's the example Jesus gave us. Yeah. So when you're doing this um, <clears throat> kind of. <sighs> re-education maybe is a bad word, but reminding to the church as you go around and do stuff like this, what what are some of the things that really um, stick out to you when it comes to building a, a theology of uh, of even things like of immigration or refugees? What do you what do you see throughout scripture that really should inform us as Christ followers to how to approach this stuff? Yeah, there's a number of big themes, and we could start looking at some of the heroes of our faith who were migrants of one sort. You know, Abraham called by God out on a promise. Mm-hmm. And then a few verses later in Genesis, I think it's 11 or 12, he's migrating again this time because there's famine in the land. And actually his story is complicated. He gets to a border, and he is under the impression that if he's going to get across this border to food, he can't exactly tell the truth. He tells his wife, Sarah, you know, say that you're my sister. Yeah, uh, That, I'm not commenting on that in terms of if that was the right or wrong decision. I mean, obviously lying, not a good thing in general. Yeah. But it also speaks to this reality that sometimes people are in desperate situation and there's not a good good solution. Um, you could look at someone like Ruth, who was, you know, a migrant into Israel. Uh, you could look at Moses. So central to his identity was his experience as a foreigner that he names his son Gershom. 
which means an alien there. Hmm. Like that was a core part of who he was going to Midian. Um, so that's part of it. And just thinking about how that informs the, the biblical story. And then you've got all these commands in the Old Testament to love those who are foreigners, often mentioned a long time alongside those who are orphans and those who are widows, and some specific rules in the law to watch out for the, the unique vulnerabilities of those categories of people. Uh, then in, in the New Testament, I think, you know, in addition to this big overarching command to love your neighbor, you have the command to hospitality. And I think hospitality sometimes, sometimes we think of that as like a great topic for a women's conference and not yeah. a men's breakfast. Yeah. Um, but actually it's not a gendered virtue. It's a command for all Christians to practice hospitality. Hmm. And in fact, it's a requirement for leadership in the church in First Timothy and in Titus. Uh, and interestingly, hospitality is not having your friends over for a nice lunch. It's not having your, you know, preparing the guest room for your in-laws with clean sheets and towels. Those are good things to do. But in the Greek of the New Testament, hospitality is philoxenia. It is the love of strangers. <laughs> and that's actually a little bit of a countercultural value in the United States of America. Like, I grew up watching Saturday morning cartoons that had public service announcements about stranger danger. Like, mm -hmm. those are people to be afraid of, or at least to be skeptical of, to be wary of. And I'm not here to say the Bible promises that all strangers are safe. Like, I don't have a verse for that. But we are commanded repeatedly to practice loving strangers, to practice hospitality, Romans 12 and elsewhere. And in Hebrews 13, we're told that some people, by welcoming strangers, have entertained angels without realizing it. Hmm. And, you know, it's actually, again, to go back to some of the stories of the scripture, you see that. That's an allusion to Abraham welcoming these strangers at a distance who bring end up being angelic messengers with this news that he's about to have uh, a child and fulfillment of a divine promise. You have someone like Boaz in the story of Ruth who, he was actually not that exceptional. He was just following the rules of the book of Deuteronomy when he would let this foreigner widow go glean in his field. But by following those rules, he ends up married to a lovely woman and part of the lineage of Jesus. You have this widow in Zarephath in the book of First Kings who uh, this Jewish prophet comes to her saying, hey, could you give me something to eat? And she basically says, I'd like to, but I don't know if you noticed, I'm on my last meal before I, my son and I die. But mm -hmm. she does take him in, and through God's power, she is sustained, her son is healed. And I love that in, in that story, you see, it's, he, she starts by talking to Elijah and saying, you're God. And she's, you know, she's a pagan woman. By the end of the story, she's talking about the God, which uh, mm. speaks to kind of a spiritual transformation that can happen when people um, receive those who are strangers with hospitality as well. How much of your work, not, maybe not even just you, but as an organization, because I feel like when you get to put um, faces to stuff like this, when you get to build stories around things like this, it makes it make a lot more sense because it's as an abstract, it's it's easy to say, uh, well, you know, there, there, all the list of reasons why uh, we as a church or we as Christ followers should not get involved, should not help. And then I'm sure, Matt, a hundred times more than I have, ha you've seen um, firsthand, I'm sure on the ground, stories of people who are in desperate situations. And, and I, I, I would just have to imagine you're sitting there like, man, if I could get, yeah. if everyone could sit right in this seat across the table and hear this person's story, it would change everything about the way they see all this. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's been a hundred percent transformative for me is to know people as individual people, to know their stories and they're incredibly diverse. Like there's not a single story out there of who a refugee is, or who an immigrant is. And I also don't want to sugarcoat it that these are all perfect people. Like, mm -hmm. you know, they're human beings, they're made in the image of God and they're also sinful people like every one of the rest of us. But um, you know, what defines so many refugee and immigrant experiences is a lot of suffering. That mm -hmm. is what has 
made them make the incredibly difficult decision to leave a homeland. Sometimes it wasn't even so much a decision as if they were going to save their lives, they had to run. Um, I mean, I was last week I was in a little church um, in Tijuana that Water Relief supports with a Haitian family sitting across from me over lunch, um, living in this church while they wait for the opportunity to seek asylum. And just, uh, you know, I communication was limited because I speak Spanish, but not Haitian Creole. Yeah. Um, they spoke a little bit of Spanish. Uh, but, you know, just hearing what I could understand of their story was heartbreaking. And I wanted to be able to offer something more than what I could. Or I think of, I mean, I have a, a, a really close friend, a former colleague who is what we call a dreamer. She was brought here to the United States as a kid, in her case from China, on a temporary visa. Long story short, their immigration attorney messed something up and she lost her legal status mm. as a 12-year-old. <clears throat> and she's now like 30. You know, she's been here a long time. Um, she's doing, you know, she has an MBA. She's married. She owns a house. She's got like a pretty normal life, but she's still got this legal issue hanging over her head and a change in public policy mm which is actually very likely, um, given some of the political dynamics, could throw her whole life into chaos. And when you know individuals like that, it makes you both you know, want to do something. And it also, I, for me, part of my wor- role is looking at the governmental policies, not in a partisan way. We are never here to tell someone, vote for Republicans, vote for Democrats. But how do we help encourage Republicans and Democrats to recognize some of the biblical principles that inform how we think about these issues and also to recognize the individual human beings who policy decisions affect? How hard is that? <laughs> How hard is that to do for you guys? I mean, the governmental side of it is harder than, like, the rest of it. Like, yeah. church people, uh, you know, I don't persuade everyone I talk to. I know that. But, like, most people, if they're following Jesus, they're, you know, they want to honor God as they're, you know, you open up the scriptures and kind of reason together. And most people, I think, say, yeah, that's like, I see that in the scriptures. Um, the, you know, the policy side of things, our f- Congress is, I, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but it's fairly dysfunctional right now, like, getting one side of the of the of, of the political divide to agree with the other side to actually pass laws hasn't happened in a little while in any significant way on anything related to immigration hmm. um, and that's been our you know we want this to be a bipartisan thing we're not here to cheer for one party or the other um, but we do think that there's some common sense things that would both be in the national interest in our interest of our national security our economic well-being but also be looking out for vulnerable vulnerable immigrants who Um, you know, are not necessarily looking for a handout. They want the opportunity to contribute. Hmm. As you, Matt, um, are sitting at a a church like Lake Forest this morning, you're sitting across uh, a room full of these guys, um, those types of people who are going to be listening to this as well. Um, What is is your um, message to regular old folks living in, in... our Lake Norman area here about like you hear this stuff and you're like, yes, I completely agree with what you're saying. Yes. This all sounds right. Biblically across the board. Like it's all making sense. What do I do with that? Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, those are my favorite people. And I would say for those who are not at that point, I would encourage people to spend a little more time looking at the scriptures. There's not, I'm not going to claim there's one biblical approach to this, but the Bible has a lot to say. And so if you've Mm. never thought about this biblically, uh, our World Relief website, we've got lots of resources to think theologically and missiologically about this issue. Um, but for those who are, like, ready, like, what do I do? Um, there's a few things. I mean, one, even, you know, without any support from World Relief, there are immigrants in this community. Like, when you see them out and about, be kind to them. Smile at them. <clears throat> you know, do your best to, you know, engage in, you know, conversation. That can make a big difference. Just, like, you know, ha- having a, a friendly disposition. <laughs> Uh, it may be that someone says, I want to 
you know, be a part of welcoming a refugee family. And there's ways to do that. Um, actually, a relatively new pro process the U.S. government has opened up called the Welcome Corps that World Relief helps to support. We can help a team from a local church anywhere in the country at this point um, help bring a refugee family to their community and help them support them through those first several months of, the, of adjustment. It's mm. not a small thing. It's a big commitment. Yeah. But it's something that we can do, and, and World Relief has information on our website about that as well. Um, it's something they call private sponsorship. Um, and then, I mean, even those policy dynamics. Sometimes I think people think, well, we can't do anything about a dysfunctional governmental system. But thankfully, uh, unlike so many of the people, some, so many of the countries that my refugee and immigrant friends have come from, we still live in a, a fairly functional democratic form of government where uh, our elected officials respond to what they hear from their voters or potential voters. And, you know, that's something fairly simple that people could do is make a telephone call to a member of Congress and say, you know, I've heard about these individuals, the dreamers who could lose their legal status, even though they've been here, you know, in many cases, 20, 25 years. We want you to fix that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I've been on Capitol Hill. Part of my job is the public policy side of this when the phones are ringing off the hook on a particular issue, and they tend to pay attention when there's a large quantity of phone calls. Hmm. Um, most Americans never make those phone calls, and then we're kind of sitting out on that part of our democratic form of government. Mm. Um, <clears throat> just a, a little bit of a sideways turn for a second, but I'm just personally curious, and I, and you t I think you talked a little bit about this, but as it relates to what, um, to what you guys do with your organization, um, do you guys... It, what's what's the difference between someone who is um considered an immigrant and a refugee and are you guys helping are you guys involved in both of those situations yeah we are so i i think i w i usually think of it as like immigrant is the larger umbrella term it just means someone from one country who's gone to reside in another country mm -hmm. a refugee is like a subset of that so okay. sort of the way like presbyterians are a subset of christians sure um uh so a refugee is specifically defined, at least under U.S. law, in that they have fled their country because of a well-founded fear of persecution that is specifically on account of their race, religion, political opinion, national origin, or membership in a particular social group. And uh, if you meet that definition and the U.S. government interviews you overseas and investigates your case and determines that you are indeed a refugee, and the U.N. estimates that there's 35 million people who meet that definition globally, so huge numbers of people a very small share of those 35 million people in any given year will be invited to be resettled to the United States. Last year, nationally, it was about 60,000. Hmm. Um, so again, we're talking about less than one half of 1% of the world's refugees. Um, but that's part of why we, we would actually like to see the U.S. do a little bit more. Not yeah. to thank everyone, but if you go back in our history, you know, 1980, uh, the U.S. resettled more than 200,000 refugees. So like at a time our population was smaller and actually there was fewer work opportunities. Now it would be a win-win yeah. because <clears throat> also incredible labor shortage. So we do a lot with those who are technically refugees, but we also serve a lot of other immigrants who may have come through other circumstances, um, but have a lot of the same adjustment needs and certainly the same need for friendship, which is one of the core things that a team from a church can provide. Uh, it's also, I think, worth noting that a bunch of the people who are coming as refugees or as other immigrants are already strong, vibrant Christians who bring a really hmm. uh, you know, vibrant faith with them to the United States that has often sustained them through incredible hardship. And then the flip side of that is there's people who are not believers who might encounter the story of the gospel for the first time in the United States, but only, of course, if there's someone welcoming them. Sure. Um, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity at Gordon-Conwell Seminary did a study a few years back, and they found that among people of non-Christian religious traditions in North America, so Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, other faith traditions, mm -hmm. many of whom are immigrants, 60% of those people in North America said they never 
they did not personally know a Christian, which we might say like, wow, they should get out more. We're in North Carolina. Like there's a bunch of Christians around here. Yeah. But maybe we need to put the mirror up to ourselves and say, are we going into their neighborhoods and loving them as our neighbors, which from Luke 10, we are called to do whether they would ever share our faith or not. But when we do that, um, often, you know, you, when you, we love people well, eventually there's the question of why. And we get to, as First Peter 3 says, to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is within you. And we've seen people of Muslim backgrounds or Hindu backgrounds mm-hmm. or, or nominal Christian backgrounds make the decision to follow Jesus in this country in a way that, frankly, they'd be very unlikely to have even encountered the gospel had they stayed in a country of origin with incredibly harsh restrictions on religious freedom, mm-hmm. where it's illegal to choose to follow Jesus, it's illegal for someone to share the gospel with them. And I mean, we're all for, you know, the church has this great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. That should include sending people to the nations. But I think we've missed something profound if we haven't noticed that God and his sovereignty has also sent the nations to us, to this context of religious freedom, where we're free to share our faith and people are free to receive that or to reject it. Mm-hmm. And we want to fully res- respect that <coughs> religious freedom. We're not um, doing proselytism where we kind of, f- you know, pressure someone or coerce them into conversion. We stay really far away from that. But that's not the same as evangelism, which is uh, an open invitation ship, uh, an open invitation to a relationship with Jesus, which is the same as how God has approached us. <laughs> you know, like yeah. we, there was no like there was no condition or string where he's like, you know, I'm going to love you if you do this thing. Right. It's just it's here and take it if if, you know, and in, in some ways it's interesting because that idea of being welcomed as immigrants is one of the central metaphors of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter two, uh, especially for those of us who are Gentiles, right? Like it talks about God tearing down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles at the cross uh, and how we who were once foreigners and strangers are are no longer that. We are fellow citizens along with God's people. And, you know, I think, again, that's a metaphor. I'm not saying that that's U.S. immigration policy. I'm not making a statement on walls or borders necessarily. Yeah, yeah. But I do think that as people who have received this cosmic grace, who have been welcomed into God's kingdom, naturalized into his kingdom, if you will. Um, you know, I think that ought to dispose us towards grace towards others and towards kindness towards others who are seeking, of course, who ultimately hope they find that citizenship in God's kingdom more importantly than in the United States of America. But, yeah. but I do think it should dispose us towards a position of, of welcome and of grace and hospitality. I love what you guys <clears throat> are doing because, um, you know, part of the, when I was, when I was, um, uh, leaving college and decide, you know, get, getting used to the idea. I've been, I've been in full-time ministry, um, since 2007. And, you know, there was, there was like a, a rough spot there toward the end of college and starting doing this as work where I kind of had to reconcile to myself because I was so discouraged with, um, the American church, I think at large and some of the stuff that I was seeing where it was like, you know, if, uh, you know, if you have, if you have all these things, but you don't have love, you're just making a bunch of noise. And I felt like that at times. And the thing that kind of flipped me around and has helped me to, to pour into ministry over all these years, I think was the realization that, um, the local church really is the hope of the world. And it's really just like you're talking about, even on a scale of changing laws and stuff, it's making a, making a large, scale change can be really hard, but it's a lot easier to think about, um, like I can invest in one place that I believe in. And if a bunch of other people do that same thing who are like-minded, then you will start to see things slowly change because we are, we are investing in this, 
no one can reach 300 something million people yeah. at the same time, but we could all maybe reach a couple hundred yeah. and see what that does. And, and that's what I love about the model of how you guys are approaching. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Well, we are really grateful for churches that, that kind of can catch that vision. And, and there's, you know, I, I share sometimes sort of a, uh, discouragement at the state of the U.S. church. In fact, the last book I did, Inalienable, is really focused on some of the ways the global church can help provide some unique perspectives back to the U.S. church. But I also, I mean, one of the privileges of working at World Relief is I get to see the church at its best. Yeah. We get to see the church stepping up, giving sacrificially caring of their time, of their resources, of their influence to care for people who are vulnerable, <clears throat> whether that's in sub-Saharan Africa or in Ukraine or in Sudan or in Chad or here in the United States where we are serving refugees and other immigrants. And, you know, it, it really keeps me motivated, you know, that sometimes the discouraging things I hear about Christians on television are not the whole story because I've seen another side of it. Well, generally the ones that get the most uh, recognition are are often the most loud and wrong. <laughs> so you have to you have to take all that with a grain of salt and realize that the people who are faithfully doing ministry well a lot of times are not ending up in many headlines they're the people that are faithfully welcoming in a refugee family in ways that you know if 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 they were doing something controversial or loud we'd all go oh man christians are so disappointing but it's it is cool because i'm sure you get to see all the time just people faithfully taking up the call absolutely yeah that's cool and it's everyday people you know like some of them have unique skills and gifts because we all are gifted but you know by the holy spirit in different ways but it's like moms and dads and, you know, busy, you know, college students sure. who find a little time in the margin of their lives to say, hey, I could be a friend with this family. Or others, it's I, I'm not in a space to do that, but I could provide financial support that helps someone else do that. Um, and that's both in the U.S., but internationally as well, and coming alongside the church in other parts of the world. That's awesome. Well, um, Matt, I appreciate you sitting down, taking the time to share with us a little bit. Um, uh, what would be a good way if someone was listening to this and would like some more info specifically about what uh, you guys are doing or even maybe to reach out uh, to you about taking the next step on something. Yeah. I mean, uh, we've got a bunch of resources at our website, which is worldrelief.org. So whether that's want to learn more, they want to be a part of sponsoring a refugee family, they want to find out what World Relief is doing outside of the U.S., there's resources and all that, advocacy tools. Um, And then um, probably one of the best ways to find me is I'm on social media, most of, you know, Twitter or um, that sort of thing. It's my full name, which is Matthew Sorens, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-S-O-E-R-E-N-S. All right. I'm following you today. <laughs> uh, Matt, thanks for the time. Thanks for sitting down. We uh, we appreciate you coming and sharing with our men this morning and, and jumping in on here as well. Thank you so much.